being me, being who I am, and I feel like, you know, as a, as a woman of heart, um, I feel like we all have the same heart no matter what, so that at least we can start changing the way we communicate with each other, not about changing each other's faith or beliefs, but it's about more than just tolerating one another. It's about having that sincere respect that sits with what am I doing and how am I communicating with you. Welcome to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall, and I'm the project coordinator at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project at the University of Windsor Law School. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And today's episode reflects one of the adventures that I've had over the last couple of months as I've been traveling. I was fortunate enough to be a guest at the University of Sydney for a month. And during that time, I worked with a number of women, one woman in particular who we're going to hear from at the very beginning of this podcast, Professor Gina Kram, who are working to change public perceptions about the stereotypes that are often imposed upon Muslim women, seeing them as passive, seeing them as victims, seeing them as oppressed. And Gina and her amazing colleagues are women who are working as scholars or working as activists to try to confront and change these stereotypes. So I was privileged to be at a conference with a number of these women, and I made a whole bunch of recordings at the time that our wonderful podcast intern, Bronte, has helped us to assemble into a 20 minutes worth of clips. And we decided that for our, what we usually call our outro, our little debrief conversation at the end, uh, that usually is Julie and myself, this time we wanted to get somebody with more of a perspective on on these issues. So we have asked a Windsor Law student, Hagar Al-Sayed, to talk with me about how these conversations and the things that the women in, in these clips, what they have said, how it applies in the Canadian context. The symposium on the agency of Muslim women in the Australian context actually came about from some humble roots with the idea that I had to bring together a small number uh, of Muslim women academics and uh, community leaders in one room thinking there would be about 20 women at the law school at Sydney University. In actual fact, because of the popularity of this initiative uh, and the fact that people saw it was very much needed in the community, we ended up having over 30 speakers across two days uh, drawing in leading academics doing research about Muslim women in Australia, leading activists within the Muslim community. We had the support of three key and peak Muslim women organisations from Australia and uh, with participants in excess of 140 people. Across the two days, we covered 
topics um, as vast as uh, family dispute resolution, disability issues, sexism, understanding the importance of spirituality and scholarship in the lives of Muslim women in Australia, as well as the issues of Islamophobia, uh, discrimination and other challenges that are faced by Muslim women. It served the purpose of creating a space, a safe space, wherein Muslim women can talk about these issues without the fear of being judged. Some of the discussion was confronting, was uncomfortable, and indeed what many of the participants commented was that this was the first time that this space had been created for them and their experiences could be shared with so many like-minded people, not because they agreed with each other, but they shared a commitment to respect one another's difference of opinion. Susan, this is an incredible gathering of women here uh, today and tomorrow, and you're keynoting tomorrow. How do you see Muslim women here in Australia overcoming those stereotypes and taking back power? I think one of the trickiest things for me personally, and then also in the women that I research, is that there's this, it's a double bind for for Muslim women. On the one hand, dealing with the, the stereotypes that exist about them in the wider community, and then also dealing with barriers within their community as well and the problem is these feed into each other so and as I'm going to say in my keynote tomorrow whereas if Muslim women want to speak openly about say domestic violence in the Muslim community they know that by doing so and making this public this conversation public they are reinforcing the negative stereotypes that Muslim men are all wife eaters that Muslim women are these passive victims so what do they do do they speak about it openly and try to address it properly or do they say nothing and let this problem fester Similarly, then there can be issues within the Muslim community of people saying, why are you airing our dirty laundry? They already hate us. Why would you make things worse? This is not an uncomplicated matter. And so it's important for people, all of us, including myself, because like I said, this is not unique to Muslims, to to be aware that we can actually be making things harder for people than they need to be by having the stereotypes or the negative assumptions or the generalizations that we have about any other group of people, the LGBTI community, the indigenous population, people disability, whatever it is, we're actually can be making it harder for them to sort out issues within their community and outside the community. So my name is Mahal Karim and I'm an academic and I would say that Muslim women are challenging misconceptions and stereotypes and taking back power by actually just being unapologetically who they are, like doing what they need to do, being in spaces where perhaps they've been excluded before, perhaps they're very comfortable in those spaces, but just I think, and I think it's a power of a gen, like a generation who was born here and, and who has grown up here. Certainly as we've gotten older, don't feel the need to explain ourselves anymore. I feel like that is taking back power because it's not necessarily pandering to people's expectations of who who you are or who you should be. My name is Fadi and I'm a PhD student at the University of Sydney. I think as a man I have no right to speak on this at all, but I also think I'm very lucky that I grew up with very strong Muslim woman role models. Having a mother who worked with Muslim women for over 35 years as a migrant worker and having sisters and aunts who were professional and I think that was a big thing that made me be aware of some of the 
hardship space, some of the hurdles that I overcome, but sometimes that I needed to sh- shut up and listen, which is something a lot of men, not just Muslim men, but a lot of men don't do. We seem to interrupt, speak or talk to and about rather than shut up and listen. What's it like being okay. an Ajabi woman in a Catholic school? So the reason I did this was I thought, okay, mainstream Australia, you relate more to, you know, Catholicism, Christianity and so forth. So building bridges, I had to get my voice, my little wee voice yes. heard. And I thought, you know, and spirituality is very important as a Muslim woman and a feminist. People were sort of, you know, the stereotypes that are out there. Muslims are not flexible. They come with their agendas. They want to shove their principles down. Your throat. It's their way or the highway, that sort of thing. And so I went for the interview, and lovely nun sits in front of me, and she looks at me, she's like, oh, what are you doing here? And I thought, oh, Lord, help me. Do I just kind of go? Because that look wasn't exactly warm. But a lot of the kids were like, um, are you a nun? And I went, oh because as we waltz into the corridor there is Sister Angela Marici our saint and she looks like me wearing a hijab or I look like her My name is Diana Abdurrahman I'm from Canberra I've had just about 30 years working in the Federal Public Service so the way I feel that I have personally been able to contribute to change the views of uh, the broader community into how Muslims are perceived is simply by being present in government uh, working forcing people to talk to me on a one-on-one basis regardless of what I look like regardless of what I wear I simply stand in front of them look them straight in the eye and continue on the business that I'm there for and how I do my business and it simply forces them to think twice with my very broad Aussie accent when I'm talking to them at at a work level. Uh, That's been primarily the way I've done it and I don't actually give people a chance to even question me because I do my job, I do it well and I make sure that you know I bring people along with me and it's quite surprising at how uh, the reaction is because people then actually are put into their place (laughs) very nicely of uh, realising that Muslim women in particular uh, have roles to play and that we are just like ordinary everyday uh, people but we may just dress a little bit differently or you know colour of our skin must, uh, for example but uh, apart from that that's how I feel that I've been able to do it. I, my name is Maha Kareem Abdo and I am the CEO of the Muslim Women's Association based in Sydney, New South Wales. One of the first Muslim women organisations established by women, for women. How I changed some of the um, misconceptions, I think just being, being me, being who I am and I feel like, you know, as a, as a woman of heart, um, I feel like we all have the same heart no matter what, so that at least we can start changing the way we communicate with each other not about changing each other's faith or beliefs but it's about more than just tolerating one another it's about having that sincere respect that sits with what am I doing and how am I communicating with you so from my heart to your heart I do hope that we can start to change and shift the way we talk to one another as women with other women and other and people of um, colors and faith and no faith Hi, my name's Sarah. I'm a pharmacist. I own a couple of pharmacies. And in one of the pharmacies that I own, I have a junior male Asian pharmacist. And we had an older white male rep come in to sell me products and what have you. And he kept addressing Jonathan. 
and Jonathan kept saying Sarah's the owner and he kept addressing Jonathan he's like you've got to address her I could see him in his mind it's like this doesn't make sense the male taller Asian man should be this girl's boss so I, I actually um, had a quiet giggle to myself because it was yes I'm smashing down some stereotypes and I'm and I'm forcing him out of his comfort zone because even though he was redirected to me it still took a bit for it to click that he needed to talk to me I find it hilarious and I'm and I love that it happens I think yes I'm so glad this is happening I'm pushing the boundaries you know and and challenging stereotypes So I'm here with Haigar Al Said, who is a uh, third year, just about to graduate. Mm-hmm. Actually, as of today, just finished her final uh, law class. So congratulations, Thank Hager. you. That's really exciting. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> uh, so Haigar has been uh, a law student here at the University of Windsor for the last three years. And we wanted to talk to her about these really cool interviews that you've just heard. Uh, so, Hager, what were kind of your general first impressions when you listened to mm-hmm. these interviews? Well, when I first listened to it, I remembered um, an instance where uh, at one point I was standing in the line for something at the post office or something, and uh, there was like an older white gentleman standing behind me, and uh, then we got talking, and he was like asking what I was doing, and I'm like, oh, I'm in law school, and I just, you know, f- finished um, my master's in political science and whatnot. And then his comment was, oh, you know, good for you, you know, overcoming, overcoming your like faith or something like that. It was like, you know, and kind of just struck me because to him, it was like these two narratives of oppression. For me, it was like, oh, I'm overcoming these barriers. I'm just doing what I I like doing and I'm overcoming these societal barriers Mm -hmm. for him. It's like, oh, you're overcoming your oppression (laughs) of your faith or whatnot. So, yeah, it was it just struck me of how like these two two narratives exist and and to him he was you know he was just making this nice comment he probably thought nothing of it that it was like condescending in a way but, he didn't yeah. see anything wrong oh, no, with, no. Yeah, yeah not at all yeah. I really like your idea that there are kind of these two narratives of oppression mm-hmm. that um for you and for other Muslim women what you are more often or what you are coming up against is societal assumptions yeah as the the ladies in and one gentleman we should say <laughs> in those interviews were talking about those societal assumptions that yeah. they're constantly having to push against. And one of those is the idea of the oppressed Muslim, Muslim woman, yeah. woman, which is exactly what this gentleman yeah. was yeah. assuming yeah. you were overcoming. He just said it in a very nice way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, and like hearing these Muslim women, it was it was just very great to see how they were like talking about how they were very unapologetic mm-hmm. and just like taking up space. And I believe it was uh, Mahal speaking about just being unapologetic about who they are and Mm -hmm. uh, not feeling like we have to pander to people's expectations of us. So it's not like I'm not doing this to prove you wrong or just like to prove to you that I'm capable of doing, but it's just... I'm, I'm just doing what I'm doing by taking up this space right yeah. here. So Absolutely. Yeah. And one of the stories that I really liked that it reminds me a little bit of your story, but it's got kind of a different emphasis, I guess, is uh, Sarah, the pharmacist, talking about how the, the older white male drug rep was making assumptions about who was in charge mm-hmm. at her pharmacy. And she had to keep emphasizing he was so confused and kind of couldn't yeah. wrap his head around it. 
And my reaction, I thought it was so interesting that her response to that was, A, she thought it was funny and it made Mm -hmm. her laugh. And B, she was kind of excited that what she was doing was you know, confronting his stereotypes yeah. and actively kind of befuddling him and challenging those stereotypes. And I was thinking, if it were me, I would just be angry. Yeah. <laughs> and that was probably, you know, my primary response would have been. And I thought it was really cool that for her, she looked at it as this, like, great moment where she was yeah. kind of actively yeah. overcoming these stereotypes. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the fact that it still took him several tries to, like, <laughs> fathom that she was the one in charge, not this guy... So one of the other things that we talked about that both of us were struck by was first uh, person who was interviewed here, Susan, talking about what she called a, the double bind mm-hmm. of perceptions from outside and from within the Muslim community, and that these perceptions kind of feed into each other and make things so complicated. Mm-hmm. And she gave the example of domestic violence that, you know, as in any community. Domestic violence is a problem. And of course, Muslim women should speak out about this and, and, you know, seek change. But so often the perception then from the wider society is that, well, see, this this just confirms that Muslim men are, you know, they all beat their wives and it's, you know, that kind of, yeah, they're barbaric. (laughs) Exactly. And so it's the struggle of should we not bring up this issue because you don't want that response. But at the same time, it's an important issue that needs to be raised. Yeah, yeah. And it's something that, you know, I often talk about with my peers about uh, accessing the legal system and what barriers stand in front of, like, communities such as mine and in, like, accessing the legal system. And, uh, you know, I go to court and um, I've or I've often been thought to be, like, uh, a client who came in for a domestic violence. And I'm, like, <laughs> walking with the lawyer because I'm his client or something. And I have to be like, no, actually, I'm, I'm the professional <laughs> yeah. and I'm a law student coming here. So... Just being that, I'm often like I stand out in that space as as like, you know, oh, like it's not the first thing that comes to their mind that I'm a Mm. professional. No, I'm a client for domestic violence. So even within the legal system, I'll have to confront these stereotypes that come from within the system. And um, I mean, often, yeah, people will have to think twice about do I want to further the stereotypes from the system about my community? That is a double barrier and yeah yeah and it must be exhausting really to have to be constantly yeah or to be asked so often I guess to justify yourself and explain yourself yeah yeah and I mean at the beginning it was like surprising because like I have to dress professionally and I'll have to like you know come in with a certain image but I'm still thought of as like oh I just came in as a client Mm. I can't possibly be the like you know professional so even Mm. then it you have to confront these like stereotypes and you also mentioned that thinking through all of this and listening to these interviews that one of the things that struck you was the idea that there's this perception that Muslim women may feel this pressure to kind of have to be everything and do everything and mm-hmm. be so accomplished. Yeah, so when Muslim women like just walk around and the f- feeling that we need to like uh, showcase that I'm like capable of doing this to overcome this image and you know that definitely can get exhausting. An issue that can come up is like to in that process of showcasing that Muslim women are capable, that we showcase how Muslim women like have these two, three degrees. They have their PhD, they're in the profession, uh, things like that. But at the same time, it's it's I think it's just as important to showcase that, you know, a housewife 
Muslim woman Mm -hmm. is also capable of doing different things. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean she's oppressed, that she's not a person with all these degrees. And uh, in that effort, it sometimes we overlook that. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it's it's uh, it can become a double edged sword in like trying to dispel these myths and also kind of like uh, overshadowing or silencing other Muslim women who might just be going about their daily life and not necessarily doing all these degrees or... Right, yeah. The whole point is that everybody, including Muslim women, should be able to just Just exist and Uh, live their lives however (laughs) they want to live them. Yeah, yeah. To end this topic uh, with a response from Dr. Marin Farouki, who is the first Muslim woman in uh, the Australian parliament... Uh, Before that, uh, speaking of accomplished uh, (laughs) women, before that, she was uh, an engineer for over two decades. She now, as an MP, has a very wide portfolio covering lots of different areas um, in Australian government. And uh, Julie asked her to just record kind of a summing up of of these, these thoughts and conversations. And I think she does a wonderful job of giving the last word here about stereotypes against Muslim women and where we need to go to eradicate those. I'm Maureen Farouki and I'm a Greens Member of Parliament in the state of New South Wales in Australia. When I joined Parliament back in 2013, I was the first Muslim woman to be in any Australian Parliament, state or federal. My current responsibilities include 11 portfolios, which are as diverse as transport, status of women, multiculturalism, drugs and harm minimization, and the environment. Before joining Parliament, I worked as a civil and environmental engineer for over two decades. There are definitely perceptions of what Muslim women should or should not be. The way we are presented in the mainstream is rife with stereotypes. It involves portrayals of Muslim women often presented as passive victims of male power who are simply unaware of their own oppression and must be continuously told that they are oppressed, they are oppressed. These are reductive and careless portrayals. We know that stereotypes are powerful, powerful things. And that is why negative stereotypes are so utterly damaging. People want us to fit into a box of what they think a Muslim woman should be. And when you don't, it really disrupts their narrow worldview. It often becomes a case of damned if you do and damned if you don't. When Muslims are categorized as one homogenous group, it completely wipes out the complexities, pluralities and histories of the different cultures we all come from and our individuality. We are as diverse a group as any other. This is also true when it comes to our agency in making life choices. In people's minds, there is this image of what an Australian should be or what a migrant Pakistani Muslim woman like me should be. And if you don't fit one or the other, then well, you're told to go home. Some don't want me in Australia because I'm a Muslim and that makes me incompatible with contemporary Australia. But when I'm out there campaigning for progressive change that most Australians support, such as decriminalizing abortion or for equal marriage, then suddenly those same people want me to adhere to their view of my religion, criticize me for not being a good Muslim and to back off from these campaigns. While there is no lack of Muslim women breaking stereotypes around the world, 
misperceptions still persist. In fact, Muslim women have been heads of state when countries like Canada and Australia have struggled with this. So sometimes it's really about letting go of stereotypes and looking at people the way they are. At times it is us, Muslim women, who need to get bolder and break down these barriers. And at other times it is about the need for other people to open up their minds and look beyond the stereotypes. And while the full responsibility to change perceptions does not lie on our shoulders, I do think that more of us have to become more bold. Let's get to work. Let's raise our voices. Let's agitate. Let's disrupt the narrative and let's make sure we are heard. In other news, on March 29th, the Toronto Lawyers Association published a response to Julie's interview with Michael Enright of CBC's The Sunday Edition, which we covered last week. Julie's interview covered the fact that more Canadians are acting as their own lawyer because they don't have a choice. The TLA response was sent out in their e-newsletter, and we're pleased to see that it solidifies their access to justice efforts in pushing for unified family courts, unbundling of services, and simplifying family law rules. However, the TLA also stated in their response that expanding the role of paralegals in family law would not only be ineffective, rhetoric we've heard before, but went further, stating that, quote, family law litigants who hire paralegals will in some measure be worse off. The NSRLP is concerned about the basis for that statement, and we stand by our position that expanding the role of paralegals in family law in Ontario would offer family litigants more affordable choices for legal assistance. This is one part of the Access to Justice solution. You can find the TLA's full response on our website. And finally, as of Monday, April 2nd, barristers in England and Wales went on strike to protest cuts to legal aid funding. The walkout is spearheaded by the Criminal Bar Association and involves the barristers refusing to take on new work. In addition to general cuts, which have cut barristers' fees by 40% over the past 20 years, there is now a new legal aid fee model, and that is at the heart of this controversy. This is the Advocates' Graduated Fee Scheme, which came into force in England and Wales on April 1st. Speaking about the underlying rationale for the strike, the CBA said that the justice system was, quote, underfunded and in chaos. It should be noted that it isn't just the CBA leadership that feels this way. The CBA balloted its 4,000 members on whether to initiate walkouts, with a 55% turnout and a 90% vote in favor of the action. This is clearly an issue that the Criminal Bar Association as a whole wants to see addressed. It's uncertain what a successful resolution might look like, but without a resolution soon, we can expect further court delays and people accused of crimes being left without representation. For more on these stories, visit our podcast webpage, representingyourselfcanada.com slash podcast. And that's it for jumping off the ivory tower this week. Given the intensity of our schedule here at the NSRLP at the moment, we may or may not be able to put out a new episode next week. But stay tuned in the coming weeks for more interviews with access to justice and social justice warriors, including our follow-up episode with Justice David Price, in which he answers questions sent in by our self-represented listeners.